0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of Skeptical Inclined Science Podcast. We have a very special episode today. We are joined by Professor Carol LaRue. So Carol is a professor of experimental pathology in UCD, as well as a consultant of chemical pathology and in metabolic medicine at St. Vincent's Hospital, Dublin. So we want to just mention that you were in the news recently as well with a drug that you were involved in the clinical trial. We also um, mention that as we go in. But uh, yeah, welcome. Thanks for, uh, thanks for joining us.
1: That's very kind of having me. Thank you. Would you like
0: to just give us a summary of your background and maybe your work to date and how you became interested in like, metabolic medicine and uh, this, this area?
1: Yeah, so, so I'm a clinician scientist. So I try to both treat patients, but also understand the diseases that we are treating. And my real interest is in obesity. So we want to understand why is it that people develop obesity and how can we treat it more effectively? And by doing so, we really are trying to understand how the gut talks to the brain. So why is it when you and I eat food, we feel satisfied? Um, and why is it that people who have the disease of obesity, when they eat the same amount of food, they don't feel satisfied? Um, because if we understand this biology, then it allows us to treat the disease far more effectively.
0: Yeah. And uh, what, was that just a particular interest in you when you started out in medicine?
1: Yeah. So, so when I started, um, you know, specializing in chemical pathology, I was really interested in this problem of metabolic medicine. So that is diabetes, um, high blood pressure, um, high cholesterol levels, but obesity kept coming up. And it almost looked to me as if it was a balloon. You know, when you squashed it on one side, it would just squish out the other side. Um, And it looked like there was too much redundancy in the system to really treat this disease effectively. But um, although I'm an internal medicine doctor and pathologist, it intrigued me that when we looked at bariatric surgery, so what the surgeons were doing, they were able to allow people to lose 25% of their weight and keep it off in the long term. So suddenly, there was a treatment that effectively treated this disease. And I wanted to understand why this surgical treatment was so effective. And that allowed us to measure some of the hormones that comes from the gut to the brain. And it turns out, that if you do these operations, these satiety gut hormones, the hormones that make you and me full, are elevated more than threefold. Um, And by measuring these hormones, we were able to show that. And now what we're able to do is take these hormones, purify it, and give it back to humans. And it turns out when you give it back to patients, they also feel less um, uh, hungry, more satisfied, and overall lose 15% of their weight.
0: All right, great. Yeah, that's it is quite a fascinating area to be in, um, especially now. And so, you, I, from what I gather, you do see patients. Like, what, how, what's the timeline from a patient maybe seeing their GP to seeing you?
1: Well, there's a major problem insofar as um, when a patient actually think they have a disease such as obesity, and the GP think they have a disease such as obesity, it takes more than six years for the patient and the GP to have a conversation. Because unfortunately, today, Um, We are still embarrassed to talk about the disease of obesity and GPs don't want to offend patients. So they don't want to say bad things um, and the patients don't want to bring it up because you see, it turns out that patients think that obesity is their fault. And if you think something is your fault, you don't really want to bother your GP with something like that. You think you need to sort it out yourself. So patients think they have obesity. GPs think patients have obesity, but they don't connect. They don't talk because of the stigma of the disease. And the patients have self-stigmatization. That's why they don't bring it up. But once that happens and patients are referred um, then we can move very quickly to provide effective treatments, be it nutritional therapies, pharmacotherapies or surgical therapies.
2: And if I can uh, circle back to the bariatric surgeries, I want to ask you is what would be the most common type of that surgery being performed on Ireland? And just a follow-up question, is there a sort of uh, an arm race between the invasive and non-invasive procedure uh, in terms of obesity loss
1: and which one is is winning so far? Mm, Great questions, you know. And so 20 years ago, uh, these operations were being done by cutting people open, you know, so open surgery, and that had very high risks and morbidity and mortality. So about one in every hundred people who had the operations died. But today, all of these operations are being done minimally invasive. That means it's being done with laparoscopes or telescopes. So the surgeons only make small incisions, maybe three centimeters, um, and then they put their scopes inside and they operate through these laparoscopes. So all these operations are now being done minimally invasive, um, but that has dramatically reduced the risks of death. So where previously one in 100 people would have died after these operations, now it's rare if one in 1,000 people actually died after these operations. So to put this in perspective, um, the risk of having a gallbladder operation or the risk of having a hysterectomy is higher than the risk of having a bariatric procedure. So it's dramatically reduced things from that point of view. Now, of course, it's still in operation. And people still have to cut through the skin to get to the to, to the parts of the bowels that are be being operated on. So, so people are also investigating even um, less invasive procedures. So for example, where you can go through the mouth with an endoscope and then operate inside the stomach or place a medical device inside the bowel. Um, So those are medical devices, and and they are improving all the time, and we are doing some research on them, and and others have published some very exciting work. Uh, And of course, finally, um, using medications. Um, because that doesn't need any operation or any devices, etc. But ultimately, what we need is we need more treatments, we need more bariatric surgery, we need more medical devices, we need more medications, we need more nutritional therapies, because the problem of obesity is so large, there's so many people suffering with this disease, that we need lots of different treatments to help them.
2: Yes, exactly. And, you know, one of among those people who suffer are definitely children and, and adolescent people. Um, so I suppose, do you think these surgeries are appropriate form of treatment for, for these particular age groups, or is it too invasive for them or too early for them?
1: So, so the first rule in medicine is always do no harm. And especially when it comes to young people um, – Uh, adolescents or children, you know, doing an operation on them, you know, people really have to think twice. However, what we are now seeing is there's a large number of children in Ireland, all across Europe, all across the world, where they develop obesity, and they develop significant bullying at school um, and they don't want to go back to school and you can imagine if you are a young person you are 15 16 years old and you drop out of school because your weight you know makes you a target at school and people are pretty nasty what then happens is your life choices changes dramatically right so if you don't finish secondary education, What happens to you afterwards are very different to people who do finish secondary education. Um, And now we see one of the biggest benefits of treating young people with severe obesity is the fact that they can complete school. Um, We also see that there's real benefits, uh, metabolic benefits and health benefits um, for young people. So surgery is considered more often now. And when you operate on somebody who is 16 years old, they lose exactly the same amount of weight than somebody who is 40 years old or 60 years old. So it doesn't matter what age you are, how you respond to the treatment. And also, it does not you don't have an increased or decreased risk of complications. So the complications remain the same. The thing, however, that does change is social interactions. So you could imagine if you are somebody who is 15 years old, who have a body mass index of 40, Um, you know, maybe people are not going to be very nice to you. But lots of people are not going to talk to you even now suddenly you take that person, they lose a substantial amount of weight. Now they have a body mass index of 30, or 27. Now they look like everybody else. Now suddenly, they have a lot of social interactions. And people are not always prepared for that. Um, so we can see in young people that have surgery, we can see an increased risk of people developing low mood, alcohol, um, uh, drugs, unwanted pregnancy. So that can happen um, in in young people if they lose a substantial amount of weight. I don't think it's surgery that does that. I think it's substantial weight loss that can do that. So we we are very... Um, uh, positive and want people to have substantial weight loss, but we shouldn't expect it only to have positive effects. We should also think about the downsides that may happen.
0: Yeah. So it's basically from like a a psychological point of view, it's much more Effective, this kind of, to intervene at this age,
1: it, it is, you know. But but for a long time we thought that obesity was a psychological illness, and that's why we gave people cognitive behavior therapy, or we tried to give people psychological treatments. Now, it turns out obesity is a disease of the subcortical areas of the brain, the part of the brain that you and I can't control by thinking. Um, but um, that does not mean that people don't have psychological comorbidities or complications so what we really need to do is to we need to treat both at the same time we need to support people psychologically but also allow them to lose weight with biological treatments so it's not one or the other it's them together that really gives the best benefit
0: yeah um yeah and as i mentioned uh at the start of uh just as i introduced you um a large component of your research is CHE replacement hormones. Uh, this has been in the news there just today that the EMA has approved uh, a new drug for uh, obesity. Um, and these are include uh, yeah, synthetic amylin and glucagon-like peptide 1. Maybe if you could just give our audience uh, an overview of these hormones and highlight the trials that you were involved in.
1: Yeah. This, so these satiety gut hormones come from the gut. Um, classically from the small intestine, but also the pancreas. Uh, And what happens is when you and I eat food, our body needs to be able to signal from the gut to the brain how much food you've eaten, right? So if you eat a small amount of food, the signal from these hormones is only a small signal. If you eat a large amount of food, then a big signal goes to the gut, or from the gut to the brain to make your brain understand that you've eaten a lot of food. Um, So what we have now worked out that in people that have the disease of obesity, this signal is very weak. Even if they eat a lot of food, they don't get a lot of signal. And that's why we hear when people with obesity tell us, when I start eating, I can't stop. I have to eat a lot of food before I feel satisfied. Um, But now what we've done is we've been able to purify these hormones. So typically GLP-1 is about 37 amino acids. So by changing just two amino acids, uh, what happens is you change the half-life. So how long this hormone lives in the bloodstream from two minutes, it now lives a week in the bloodstream. So now it turns out we can give a treatment once a week that allows you to feel more satisfied when you eat food. And that's the amazing thing. People come back and they say, you know, since I've started this treatment, I just feel normal. I feel less hungry. When I eat, I feel more satisfied. I'm not thinking about food every waking moment of my life. I can just get on and do things. Uh, I just feel normal. And that is truly amazing and um, so it's not hard. We, we're not asking people to become more motivated or more intelligent. Um, merely what these hormones are doing is it's working through biological pathways. And that's why it's safe and effective. Um, and it allows people to feel um, normal the way that normal white people will feel after a meal.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. And just to say that um, that drug actually that the EMA approved, it's called semaglutide Um What are the clinical considerations in in using this drug to fight against obesity? Mm.
1: So, So one of the hardest things for us is that we are not very good at diagnosing the causes for obesity. So we don't have good blood tests or, you know, even genetic tests that really shine a lot of light today on the problem. So imagine there's maybe 10 diseases, different diseases, And they all result in people having excess adipose tissue, so excess fat cells under the skin or around their organs. What will happen then is that um, these different diseases will have different responses to treatment. And if you use a drug like semaclutide, um, it will treat about five or seven in every 10 people. Um, And therefore, they will have a significant response. They'll feel less hungry, more satisfied, and they will lose substantial amounts of weight. Now, the three in 10 people who did not respond to this treatment, they are not less intelligent or less motivated. Um, All that happens is they have a type of disease that's not responding to this treatment. Okay. So, so, we are thinking now of these treatments not as weight loss treatments, but really as obesity treatment. It treats the disease, allows the disease to come under control and to remain under control in the long term.
2: Carol, I have the uh, honor of asking this question. Mm. Are, are there any potential drawback to that to that treatment? You know, I, I work with drug development as well, mm. so I'm acutely aware of how important this is.
1: No, you are correct. You know, my old professor of pharmacology always said there's only two types of drugs, drugs that do not work and drugs that have side effects. So all drugs have side effects, right? And this is no different. Um, so as, as a PhD student, I spent a lot of time injecting these natural hormones into humans for the first time, and we were measuring the effects. And what we immediately recognized when we were giving the natural hormones is if we gave too high a dose of the hormone, we made people very nauseous. Okay, Um, And that's probably because the brain um, struggles to differentiate between extreme satiety and nausea. So if you think a little bit, you know, if we have a big celebration, like we have an American Thanksgiving or, you know, Christmas dinner or, you know. Party's Day, Yeah. yeah. Yeah, after that third pudding, right? After that, you feel, oh, you know, I should have really have stopped at the first pudding. Right, that that is called namiaty. That's the Latin word for that feeling. So that it's that feeling of excess. Okay, excessive fullness. Now, now the brain interprets this very often as nausea, and that's probably what these drugs are doing. They are generating this feeling of excessive fullness. Right? So that is the, the first and most common side effect that people report. The good news is that this nausea settles down. so it doesn't stay there. it, go, it comes and it goes. Uh, the next problem is that people can have become constipated. Now again, there are receptors, these GLP1 receptors on the small bowel and also in the stomach and it, it reduces small bowel transit and reduces stomach emptying. Um, and that is a natural effect of these hormones. That's what it's supposed to do, right? Um, and when we give these hormones back, we see that this can result in constipation. So let me just explain why that's a natural mm-hmm. effect of sure. the hormones. So if you have a terrible um, diarrhea like illness you have a virus or you have a bug that you've you've taken into your gut and your gut is trying to get rid of this bug you know virus or bacteria what will happen is you'll have torrential diarrhea okay and then what will happen is undigested food will reach your large intestine your colon and there's a lot of these hormones that situated in the, last, the large intestine. So therefore, it, it elevates, it goes three, four, five times higher than it should. Now, the reason why they are situated there is exactly for that reason. So when you have a diarrhea-like illness you need to stop putting food in your mouth, right? Because the gut needs to rest. And any of us have ever had diarrhea, you'll remember the first thing that happens is you did not feel hungry. You developed anorexia. You did not feel hungry, right? And that is because these hormones are elevated, right? Now, the reason, so it stops you eating, but also what it does is it slows your gut transit. Now, that is its its normal function, but you can imagine if I'm just giving you some of these hormones back, you're going to have a reduction in gut transit, and therefore, that can lead to constipation. Another thing that can happen, another side effect, it's pretty rare, but anything that makes you lose weight, a diet approach, medication, or surgery can cause gallstones. And this is the same. So it's about three in 100 people can develop gallstones. Um, now, if that happens, we can treat that. We can manage that. But those are the three most common side effects. There are smaller things that can also happen, rare things. But those are the three common things we talk to patients about.
2: Uh, yeah. Well, uh, I, I I wonder if um, when we talk about food and you know having the excess of food, as you describe. Uh, is it is it fair to to think that obesity as a as a food addiction is the same in the same way as thinking about drug addiction?
1: Yeah, so, so that's a that's a concept that uh, has grown in popularity, and there's good reasons for it. Um, and again, this comes back to this idea that obesity isn't one disease. So I think there is a number of patients where food does become addictive, right? Um, And I also think there's a large number of people with obesity where food is not an addiction, that they are consuming more calories for many other reasons. But let me put it this way, that human beings, when we are happy, we eat. And when we are sad, we eat. If you go to a birthday party, you know, there will be food. If you go to a funeral, there will be food, right? That's what we do as humans, okay? Um, But there's lots of people who are normal weight who also eat when they're happy and eat when they're sad, but they don't change their body weight. The problem is is that if you have the disease of obesity and when you are sad, you eat, you overeat, you consume a large amount of food before you stop. Okay. Now, the other thing that also happens is that we can use food as an emotional regulator. Um, So, you know, people know, and that's called comfort food. So, you know, if they're not feeling well, they would eat something and that would that would give them comfort. Now again, they're not eating in that instance because they are hungry. They're eating for comfort. Now again, I think it's fair to say that some people who are normal weight does, they do the same, right? Um, but it doesn't become a problem in their case. So coming back to the question, you know, is there something like food addiction? I think it does exist. I think it is a it's a real issue. I don't think it is incredibly common. And I don't think it is the major reason, you know, why we are seeing significant obesity. But it is certainly something that when it can be diagnosed and treated effectively, it can work really well. So I think it is something that we need to consider.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's just interesting because I've um, I've studied and I've seen how certain studies look at fMRIs and how these people, um, they often like react differently to Mm. like ads of like with food and stuff like that so they're more likely to go oh i i'd like to do to like whatever like eat buy that product like the food so yeah it i think it is an interesting um point to just look at but i do think as well like coming from your aspect as well of uh of like satiety as well and them kind of Mm. hormones um but like given that uh obesity is thought to be a combination of genetics and other factors how important is genetics in developing Mm. it um yeah what do you you
1: yeah and and that's really the crux of the matter so we now understand that you know if you come from a family where everybody in your family are tall you're probably going to end up being tall if you come from a family where everybody are short you're probably going to be end up you know being short but we don't go around to short people and say (laughs) why are you just not motivated and grow a bit taller, right (laughs) but if we if we look at families you know um, there's families, you know, where obesity is clearly pervasive within the family. And therefore the children, you know, have a much higher risk of also having obesity. So your height is predicted by about 70% of your height is predicted by genetics. And it turns out your weight, also about 70% of your weight is, is predicted by genetics. That does not mean um, that there's not other factors or doesn't mean that, you know, if you say that obesity has a strong genetic basis, that people won't take um, responsibility, right? And and that we need to address that because that's a real myth. The, the myth is that if we declare obesity a disease, then suddenly everybody with obesity is going to run to McDonald's and say, ah, oh, you know, I have a disease. I can't do anything about it. You know, I'm just going to eat a lot of McDonald's now. That's just not true. And it doesn't happen with any other disease that we have. So if your pancreas stops working and you develop type 1 diabetes, and I diagnose you with a disease of type 1 diabetes, you don't go, oh, you know, I have type 1 diabetes. I can't control my sugar. I'm going to eat a lot of sugar. No, what you say is, oh, my goodness, isn't it terrible? I have this terrible disease. It's a chronic disease. We have to manage it for the rest of my life. I'm really sad about it. But now I'll take a responsibility. It gives me agency. Now I need to engage with the treatment of this disease in the long term. Um, And that's really where we want to shift the focus away from this idea that you can just eat less and move more and take personal responsibility to saying this is a disease that is your responsibility. But it's also my responsibility as a healthcare professional to give you a treatment that works. Right. And and that could be a nutritional therapy, it could be a pharmacotherapy, it could be a surgical therapy. Um, you know, that's really where we need to go. Yeah.
0: Uh yeah. And I'm also interested maybe in your opinion on this. Um, so yeah, we live in a world now now where body positivity is very much promoted, mm. whatever your size. And yeah, it's a good thing that it's now less socially acceptable for people to be bullied for their weight, as you mentioned before. However, have we gone too far to the other extreme where being overweight is now seen as acceptable or in some cases virtuous even though it has bad consequences for your health.
1: Yeah. So so I'm a, a I'm a doctor that treats diseases, right? So um so I treat the disease of obesity and I don't actually care what people look like or how they feel with what they look like. I want everybody to be happy with whatever they look like, you know, but the the main, the important thing is when I treat somebody effectively for obesity, I make them lose 25% of their weight, a quarter of their weight. Actually, most people who have lost a quarter of their weight tell me they do not see anything different when they look in the mirror. Okay. So we say to people, when we treat obesity, we will not make you thin and we will not make you happy. Okay, what we will do is we will make you healthier and more functional, right? So if somebody um, likes the way they look, and they are living in a larger body, but they are really annoyed by the fact that they have diabetes, what we can do is we can use obesity treatments that could reduce their body weight reduce their risk of developing diabetes or improve their diabetes. Now, they may see themselves exactly as they saw themselves before, right? Or they may change the way they see themselves. I can't change that. And I can't even influence that. And I have no problem with people liking themselves in whatever shape and form they are. And I also have no problem in people disliking themselves in whatever shape or like they are. I can't change that right? But what I can change is, you know, how long people are going to live and what quality of life they have. Um, so, if you like the way you look, but you can't sit on the floor and stand up, right? You have a functional impairment um, and we can help with that, okay? Um, but, you know, equally so, if you, if you, you like the way you, or, or you don't like the way you look, and you can sit on the floor and stand up, you still don't like the way you look, right? So that's something else that needs to be addressed. So so I think we need to, and we've used these terms now. The term is a cultural desire for thinness. This is this idea that people want to fit into a different um, uh, swimsuit or they want to fit into a different suit or, or dress or whatever, right? And, and I think the body positivity movement is a counter movement against this cultural desire for thinness. And people are saying, actually, you know, I don't want to be thin, right? And that is perfectly acceptable, right? Um, and equally, having a cultural desire for thinness is perfectly acceptable. You know, that's fine, right? I don't engage with either of those conditions, you know, where I engage with, is the disease of obesity that we can treat? You know, because we want to reduce people's risks of becoming sick, and we want to reduce their risks of dying early. Um, and and as I, I want to emphasize that again, I do not really change what people see when they look in the mirror. So if people come to us because they want to be thin and happy, I say to them, I'm really sorry, I can't help with that. What I can help with is making you more functional and making you healthier
0: yeah yeah. no i really like that i think that's a really uh good point to say like if you're not happy about yourself regardless of your body type then it's not gonna this isn't gonna make a difference so yeah i suppose just to be happy with what how you are as a person i think is a a good message to take
2: anyways Mm -hmm. Carol, uh, we know that you're retired after the press release today. So we have only two more questions and we're going to let you go. Okay. So you just bear with us for two more. Um, so what I actually want to ask is um, me and Evan had an argument there b- before you get on the, on the call. And the question has emerged from it. So how much of the obesity crisis seen in Ireland is down to individuals not taking responsibility for their actions or, f- or for being overweight versus the government in action uh, in tackling the obesity in the society?
1: Yes, so important question because it allows us to work out where we need to or how we address the disease. So let me put a very controversial statement uh, to you. So in the past, we really thought that overeating caused obesity right? And if you think that overeating causes obesity, it's very reasonable for you to try to help people to eat less, be that by asking them to be personally responsible or asking the government to intervene to help us, you know, eat less. But now the revolution is that we think that we were completely wrong. And in fact, the opposite is true. We now think the disease of obesity causes you to overeat, right? Now, if you view the world from that angle, now you will say, okay, fine. Now what I need to do is I need to treat the disease of obesity. And I know I'm successful when people naturally eat less. Okay. So that now means that the individual has a responsibility to find the treatment for the disease of obesity and the government has a responsibility to make treatments for obesity available. And if we are successful, the natural outcome of that will be people will eat less food, right? And if they eat less food, they will lose weight. Um, So I think both the individual and the government has huge responsibility. I think scientists and clinician scientists like myself have a huge responsibility to find better treatments. Because although today, you know, we have a, a great treatment that's available to us, our treatments are still pretty rubbish, you know, for the majority of people. We need to be a lot better and we will become a lot better. And I think today, now with treatments like semaglutide being available, that's going to revolutionize how we think about obesity, but it's only the start. This is not the ultimate, you know, final um, answer to everything. It's the start in trying to solve this problem. Because when you treat somebody effectively with a treatment like semaglutide, or you treat them effectively with a treatment such as bariatric surgery, the natural uh, response of the patient is, I feel less hungry, I feel more full, I eat less food. I eat the same food as I've always eaten, I just eat less and i feel satisfied and i think that that's the revolution that's about to happen
2: yeah, yeah that's uh, a, sorry, sorry evan i just I, I just need to have a little follow-up on this one because <laughs> you paid a lot of attention to, um, in terms of uh, treatment being available for people is there any room for preventive actions before absolutely. before the, the disease
1: kicks in no absolutely um so you know prevention is critical um, uh, and, and, and that's an important point. You know, by saying we need more treatment, we are not saying we need less prevention. And by saying we need more prevention, we should not say we need less treatment. We need more prevention and we need more treatment. Um, where I think the focus needs to change, however, is that prevention needs to be focused on people who do not have the disease. So prevention needs to be focused on people who are normal weight. Okay, So if you are normal weight, we should pound you with messages about you need to eat healthy, you need to exercise. But once you have the disease, by definition, we can't prevent it anymore. Now we have to treat it. Okay. And, and, and we do that very well Um, in cancer. We do it really well. You know, we prevent lung cancer by asking people and having good campaigns to stop smoking. But also if you have lung cancer, we have incredibly good chemo radiotherapy, surgical treatments to treat the disease. Um, And those are the same thing, you know, HIV AIDS is the same thing. You know, we need to prevent the disease, but if you have the disease, then we do different treatments so that we can maintain it so so these are not mutually exclusive ideas we need to do both we need and and they are different they're very different right um but both need to be effective yeah yeah
0: i think that's a really uh, interesting way of looking at it i think um i think and it's not really well established out there for for regular people to understand that. So yeah, I think that was uh, interesting to hear. Um, yeah. And then just our final question for you. I think it's a recurring segment on our podcast. So we like to ask uh, our guests, like what was your favorite paper that you've ever uh, published? Um, if it was recent or maybe it was your first paper, just uh, interested to hear.
1: Yeah. So, so, so the paper that probably launched my career was um when we discovered these gut hormones were elevated after bariatric surgery. Um, and suddenly, we completely changed the dogmas around surgery before people thought that surgery worked through restriction and malabsorption. Um, and suddenly we showed that surgery works through physiological means. And by doing that, we were able to demystify how surgery worked and make it available to far more patients. So I think that's the that's probably still my favourite paper and the one I owe, owe the most to.
0: And like, look how it's gone on now. we hopefully mm. your work has kind of helped get this first. Is it the first drug now for uh, a, a satiety?
1: yeah it's it's the most effective drug we have you know we've had some previous ones um but this has certainly been the most effective drug
0: yeah it's great to see and hopefully it can have as promising a result for everyone um that it, it needs to treat yeah that's, that's i think that it, it then do you have anything else you want to add tom
2: or um no i thank you for your time that's yeah. the most important thing today uh thank you for answering our questions i um uh, i hope they weren't too boring for you. But yeah, thanks very much for coming on and uh, yeah, best of luck with all
0: the research you're doing in Vincent's and and in UCD and uh, hope we'll see more
1: work uh, in this area. I know, and thank you so much for asking me. I really appreciate that.
0: That was Professor Carol LaRue on today's episode and again, we're very grateful for him joining us. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you want to reach out and ask any questions or give any feedback you can uh, reach us on twitter at skeptically I, instagram at skeptically inclined and you can also email us at skepticallyinclined@gmail.com. at gmail.com again skeptically with a c that was today's episode and we will talk to you on the next one stay skeptical bye